Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we have an interview with Kathy Lee Sepsik, the CEO and founder of a company called Femesis that's in the women's health and reproductive space. I can't wait to share her insights with all of you. Before we jump in, I want to thank our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. And if you've been enjoying our content, please make sure to click subscribe and share this show with some new listeners. Thank you so much for supporting Lady Scientist Podcast. Hello, everyone. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Kathy Lee Sepsik. She's the CEO and founder of a company called Femesis that's been focused on fertility innovations and options for uh, fertility and women's healthcare. And um, for those who've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you know, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. I think it's been an understudied space. And I love that Kathy has been working in this area. She founded Femesis 18 years ago, I believe. And today we're going to dive into her career journey to founding this company, um, how things have evolved over the years, all the great innovations that they've uh, provided to this space. And I'm really excited to share her insights with all of you. So Kathy, thank you so much for being on Lady Scientist Podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. Let's start out with your background. So can you give us a brief overview of your career? So I uh, have a degree in biochemistry, and then I went straight through and uh, got my MBA. And I was fortunate, I, um, I'm in Atlanta now, but at the time I, was, I grew up in New York and New Jersey, and I had an opportunity to do some internships at pharmaceutical companies and um, landed my first job out of grad school at a med tech firm. And I loved it from day one. And so all of my background's been in med tech and I was able to work for larger companies, smaller companies prior to founding my own company, but strictly med tech, different areas within med tech, not women's health, actually, cardiovascular, orthopedics, uh, to name to name a few. But uh, that's been my journey to get to Femesis, uh, a blend of startups and some larger companies as well. And as far as your decisions for your education, so you started out in science with with biochemistry as an undergraduate, and then you went on to get your MBA. What played into that decision? Yeah, I mean, I've always had uh, an interest in the sciences, so that was a very natural decision for me to pursue uh, that type of undergraduate degree. I will say I was a pre-med student, so it's not surprising with the biochem degree. Um, but I decided kind of early on that I really felt I wanted to combine the business side of it with science. And I wanted to do it early because um, I wanted to go straight into industry. So I didn't wait to get my MBA. I didn't have the job experience except for internships. And that was just a personal decision I made to go straight through and then uh, join the workforce. So it really was that part of it, it was the interest in industry that drove me to the MBA. Love it. And did you feel like getting your MBA set you up well for entering into industry once you were finished with that degree? For me, it did. Um, I wanted to, I actually pursued a role in product management 
And I was able to be very technical and the science background absolutely was essential. But then there was such a business component to it, how to commercialize um, the entire development process, working with regulatory, clinical, all of the elements that you get to have exposure to in a product management role. Um, and I got to look at various different areas within the body. So that was incredibly interesting to me. And I was able to go out in the field. So I had a, because I, had interned so much at hospitals. It was such second nature to me. I had that opportunity. It was just great. I just loved everything about it. So you were building this niche for yourself early on in your career from, from a business and med tech, medical, medical, how, what's the full definition of med tech? Uh, Medical technology. Medical technology. Yeah. And I really, I mean, it was, I built it exactly how I wanted to see my career evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I enjoyed so much of it that I just kind of took on more elements of it. But being technical and being in business is really crucial working in this type of environment um, because the technical piece allows you to have the conversations with physicians and be uh, able to bridge that for others that may be less technical in that way, but more business oriented. And then the business piece is absolutely essential when you're thinking about combining, how do you, how do you advance technology from a business perspective? So it really is, I think, essential in many roles within med tech, biotech, pharma, even when we look at, um, you know, advancing products all the way through the cycle. Yeah, I think that's a great point, how crucial marrying the technical expertise, the domain expertise with, with the business knowledge can be for this space. So what did the next few years look like for you post-degree? What were the types of roles you were seeking out? And um, how did that evolve leading up to you founding Femesis? So I started in a product management role, as I mentioned, and I actually worked at the U.S. subsidiary of a very large Japanese firm. So I was able to get uh, some exposure internationally. I'm actually the first generation born here. My dad's Korean, my mom's Colombian, so it's an unusual mix. But um, so I'm very comfortable with international aspects, uh, but that's very different from a business perspective. So that was really exciting with that particular role. And one of our main business partners was Boston Scientific at the time. They were prior to going public, they were a smaller organization. And I was able to look at product usage throughout the body, neurovascular, cardiovascular, uh, radiology. So all of that kind of gave me a wide breadth. Um, and then I decided to leave Turimo and join a startup. And that's when I got exposure to short stint in women's health, but mostly orthopedics. And um, it was really, it was my passion to envision myself being in the role that I am in right now. So I very much prepared myself through these multiple startups um, to, to be able to start my own company. I wanted to be really prepared. So I'm kind of a planner by heart. So you can kind of see, planned out my career, planned out everything really. Um, And so I uh, didn't stumble on anything. It was very purposeful. And I, you know, wanted to make sure I gave myself the best chance at success. And certainly anyone that um, you came along for the ride, became part of the team, whether it was an investor or an employee that I was well positioned um, to carry it through the various different stages. So the various different startups I worked in, um, product management to business development to 
basically running the company at the startup before uh, before Femesis. I was able to sit in on board meetings, work with investors, bring on that fundraising piece that's so critically important for a, for a startup. Um, so I was able to do that kind of all prior to starting Femesis. It sounds like you put so much thought into both training yourself as a leader and a founder, but also making those crucial connections that you would need to, to start your own thing. So what, what were the pieces that came into place that made you feel like you were ready to start Femesis? And, and I, I, especially both on the kind of uh, personal psychological side, but also on the idea or thesis side of, of what mm-hmm. Femesis was gonna focus on. So at the time in which I decided to take the leap, um, I've been married to my husband. We've been together since I was 18 years old. So long time and we had two girls. And at the time there were seven and four. And I was looking at options that we have, we as women have for basic healthcare needs. And I'm the inventor on all the technology at Femesis. So it's a bit unusual uh, in that regard. And so it, I just felt like we were being underserved when the time comes when you want to control the number of children that you have. And those options were just so limited. And I mean, tubal ligation surgery has been around a hundred years. That's, that's it. So I just, I thought my idea was, was worthy. Um, and I felt strongly that it would change women's healthcare potentially for women around the world. And I set such a lofty goal. Um, it is a, a, uh, you know, more challenging product to bring through the FDA and regulatory process. It's the most stringent medical device classified as a class three. And so I looked at that invention and said, I think I have something um, and started working on the IP and uh, building the team around that and starting to advance um, R&D. We worked out of my home at first. So this is the store, a true startup story. Uh, my kids would be banished to different parts of the house while employees would be coming all day, all night. Um, everybody had keys to my home and we just opened ourselves up to uh, to all the possibilities this could be. And we took a very big decision of, of my, my husband left his job to stay home to help with the kids uh, because we wanted to make sure I could stay really focused. So it was an all, all in kind of scenario. And, um, and that was 18 years ago but I was really prepared from a business standpoint that I understood all the elements that needed to come into place to secure financing, to advance the company. I understood the development cycle. I had been involved in a class three clinical trial previously, which isn't very common. It was in cardiovascular, but um, so I had that experience. So I knew what it was gonna take. um, And so I built around that and jumped, so. Wow. And as far as the fundraising component, what did that look like for Femesis in the early days? So typical friends and family round um, in the beginning. Um, And I didn't really anticipate uh, that it would have evolved this way, but it turns out family offices and high uh, high net worth individual investors became absolutely crucial to Femesis. 
um, up until we took, I took the company public June of 2021, that was the first time we actually brought on any institutional investors. So in one of my later rounds, we brought on Medtronic as a strategic investor. So it was very validating. But up until that point, that's who we relied on for our funding. And there was, there's, there's reasons for that. Um, but that just evolved in our overall strategy. So from day one, that was a very important component and then continued to be an important funding source for us. Interesting. Definitely a different model than we're seeing a lot of, you know, in the modern day founder-led biotech space right now with, um, you know, a, a major reliance on, on VC funding. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the IP a little bit because I find this so interesting. So you were the lead invent, you were the inventor of the original technology. And did you say that you're the inventor on all of the technology that Femesis has now developed or? Yeah, I am. Um, and so it's it's been very purposeful to make sure everything's synergistic. Um, we have a platform. So some of the technologies advance off the same platform. Others are more uh, unique and are uh, companion products. But yes, I am the lead inventor on all of it. So we haven't licensed anything. Uh, we certainly could be in a position to do so down the line. So every product that we're working on has a place. There's a reason. Uh, and then we pursue it and bring it forward in the development cycle. But it started with our permanent birth control product initially. I see. Can you can you walk us through a little bit as far as what, what that technology serves? Sure. So we have a unique delivery modality. We're able to deliver into the uterine cavity specifically to a woman's fallopian tubes in a way that no one thought to do. And I've taken that technology and said, what can we do with it? In one situation for permanent birth control, we've also had to develop what we're using, which is a tissue adhesive-based product as a biopolymer. And we need to combine those two things to affect the ultimate uh, endpoint, which is uh, eliminating the risk of pregnancy. For FemBlock, I set the goal that I did not want to leave anything behind in the patient. I want it to be as natural as possible, so no implant whatsoever. So our biopolymer is indwelling a very short period of time, about three months, and then it's gone. What we leave behind for the patient is her own scar tissue. And that is very different than any approaches that have come about for this particular uh, issue. And so not only do we need the delivery mechanism, we needed that biopolymer and they both ran very different development cycles. Um, as far as the delivery part, we then took it, took that ability to isolate and deliver to the tubes in a way where you don't need anesthesia. You don't, the doctor doesn't need any special skill sets. It's minimally invasive. It comes through, uh, the vagina into the uterine cavity without leaving anything behind very much like an IUD placement. Um, and in other applications, we are pursuing a product called Femiseed, which allows us to place sperm directly into the tube where conception occurs. So in, in this category, as is similar to Femblock's category, decades, there's been no innovation. Same technologies around for a very, very, very long time. So we're looking to improve options, expand options, replace antiquated technology that exists. We can also leverage that same delivery platform to deliver medication to the tube. Today, we know ovarian cancer, it used to be 
suspected, and now there's really phenomenal literature that supports this, starts in the fallopian tube. So we have the ability to isolate the tube and not have to come in laparoscopically um, to access the tube. And so those are some additional applications for the delivery me mechanism. We are also the developers of a product called FEMBU. FEMU is on the market. I call it a companion diagnostic because in order to help a woman get pregnant with our therapeutic option called Femiseed and put the sperm in her tube, her tube has to be open. And so one of the baseline diagnostic exams to look at a person's fallopian tubes uh, up until FEMU was sending her to radiology, exposing her to radiation, utilizing radiopaque dye. It's an expensive exam. She's not with her GYN. And we changed that with our FEMU product. We utilize standard existing ultrasound. The GYN can now look at all infertility factors in one visit before they fell just shy, just could not look at the tubes. And our, our product allows for that. And so it's a very, very exciting product line. It's been, we're commercializing it directly. We don't have a sales force. So it's word of mouth. We're selling quite a, bu a bunch of these. Um, but one day that will change when we're able to support it commercially and bring it forward with our therapeutic option. And the two go hand in hand. Uh, we utilize that same similar technology where we're basically creating bubbles, natural saline and air contrast to look at the tubes. Um, we are utilizing that for our Femlock option as well. So when women go through this technology, we can check her tubes, make sure the scarring occurred before she relies on it long term. So we're leveraging that companion diagnostic for a multitude of purposes. It it's it's so exciting to learn about this space because I guess for for myself as you know naive to medical technology and 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 this space, it just seems like there have been such limited options for women and um, you're really advancing what what you know clinicians can can do to support women in in their fertility journey so it's really exciting and I I wanted to ask on your website it says you that Femesis has over a hundred patents so can you clarify you're you're the inventor of all of that technology Yes, I am. Um, but it, the patents, there are base patents, and then we file them in multiple countries. So, um, but yeah, we have a very robust IP portfolio uh, with that many patents. We have design patents, we have method patents, we have extension patents, you know, to continue our patent life. Uh, we have uh, a few other products that I, I we have uh, some diagnostic products for detection of cervical cancer. It falls into the same mantra of replacing many decades old technology. Uh, so we're looking to advance that uh, as well. But so there's a body of IP for that. Um, and it's all focused in the office for the OB-GYNs. I mean, that was really the, the deliberate mission, we wanted to engage the doctor in the office because GYNs practice in hospitals outpatient surgery centers, office, and they don't have many technologies in the office where they can bring that to their patients in a safe and convenient way. So that's our entire focus. We don't focus on any of the other call points and very few companies, if any, if we want to say, are really doing that. So we see that as a huge opportunity for, for many reasons. And so what is your, your process like for this uh, bolus of inventions? Do you 
speak with the doctors about what's missing and, and that informs um, your, your design process. Um, and then how does that connect with, with the business as a whole and yourself as a leader and your time? Like, is it, you know, how much of your time is spent on this process? I mean, for FemBlock, to be honest, that came right from pure personal desire and understanding the issues that women face when you're trying to control the, I, I am a, a huge advocate of not being on hormones um, when you hit a certain age. I mean, there's box warnings on all of those products. I mean, when you hit over the age of 35, which clearly I am at the moment by 20 years, um, but you know, it's, it's not good for us to stay on hormones. And that's really the predominant option available to women. And when you're at that stage of your reproductive life, what choices do you have? Um, I, I was aware the increased risk of blood clotting. We now know there's an increased risk of breast cancer. So hormones serve a role in the early years. They're not ideal in the later years. And when you look at the breadth of options, if you don't want to, you know, just kind of by chance continue to have children and you want to really control that part of it, you're left with little to no options. And so that invention did not come from a validation from physicians because I already know what they have. They have one thing to offer their patients and it's surgery. Um, so it really was about a pure frustration personal frustration. I also have two girls. One day they're going to be here too. Um, and so are their girlfriends and everyone else that we know that are extensions to who we are uh, and to who we know. But, and I also look globally when we think about and, and have seen and witnessed women that have undergone surgical approaches in non-sterile environments, what that can look like. So there's an, it's an opportunity to really kind of change the landscape for women around the world with a product like this. And then as a result of it came the birth of these other products. Again, similar delivery mechanism. How do I fix this confirmatory test? That was really what brought me to Fembu. Uh, it was the stress around, I can't, I don't feel good about sending her to radiology. I come forward with a, what I think is an ideal solution and that I hope others think are, is ideal. But then I sent her to radiology for an expensive test that we know women won't go for. Um, and so, you know, that kind of is the evolution of how some of these products have come to be. How do we fix the core product that we're working on? How do we fix all of it? Um, and then, you know, how do we make the GYN very um, engaged in the office? How do we bring more technologies to that call point and solve other issues? And that's, that's been the driving force. Just to give us a sense, what is the, the team like at Femesis? And, and I know on your website, uh, you have it front and center that this company is woman-led, obviously. Can you talk about what it has looked like over the years for you to build out this team and, and kind of what the makeup is today? So, I mean, woman-led meaning me, uh, we have a very blended team. It's very diverse, men, women, all sorts of ethnicities and um, women of various different ages, men of various different ages. It's important to have multiple perspectives. I think that's important, even running a women's health company. And I see men running women's health companies every day. In fact, a lot of them. Um, and they feel well suited in their roles. And I believe that they are because there's a different perspective. Um, so I think that blend is important. When we talk about basic healthcare needs like contraception, it actually affects the couple. Um, 
even some, whether it's you know, young couples, older couples, they're at different stages in their life. They may be trying to have a baby. They may be not wanting any more kids and the impact that has on the overall family. So my team has always been blended. My right-hand person is still with me today. Um, it's, he's a male. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's not, we probably have more women on the team, but I think it's just best person for the position and just happened to be that there's some women that there, there's more women in the makeup, but um, it's exciting to get that perspective. And I often do that. We assemble the team, men and women. How do you see this issue? Does that resonate? Would that resonate with your partner? Does that resonate with you? Um, and I think that's important when you're looking at a solution that kind of affects the entire family. I think that's such a great point about why diverse teams are important is really having those different perspectives. And I know for myself, having been on teams that were overwhelmingly made up of men, it, it can be hard to have, have the woman's perspective heard, right, in a group um, that's 99% men. And I, but I, I love that you've built a team that, that is diverse and, and is pulling in um, different views and, um, likely benefiting the company as a result. You, you've said in interviews, uh, previously that storytelling is such an important piece of running a company. Where did you first learn the art of storytelling within the business sphere? My mom would probably say at the age of like three or five when I opened my mouth, but, um, it's an innate, thing for me. I, um, I really love telling the story. I haven't actually had the opportunity to do so as much, and I'm looking forward to this era of time for the company, but, you know, practice makes you better as well. So I know that that's part of the role that I'm in. You have to be able to explain and do it in a variety of different ways, depending on your audience, what you're working on, the impact, the kind of return it could be if it's an investor. And so, uh, you know, being comfortable doing that is really critical. I, of course, have the added layer of this is absolutely something I feel 100% behind because I have conceived it and I work on it every single day. Um, and perseverance is really important in a role when you're fighting in women's health because it isn't an area where uh, there's been a lot of investment dollars. It's not a sweetheart out in the community and you need the funding to be able to advance what we do. It takes a lot of funding. So, um, you know, honing in on those skills and being able to do that at, for the various different stockholders is just something com that comes over time. You get better at, at it over time, but it's been, it's an innate skill for me. Um, but Hopefully you think I'm good at it too, since I'm on your podcast <laughs> your audience thinks it's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm learning so much. And, and I think it's such an important piece in general is, is storytelling and, and communicating one's mission. And, and that that's certainly from a business perspective, important for fundraising and, and sales and all of that, but um, also just, just in general. So I'm, I was excited to get your perspective on that. So I'm curious, you started this company 18 years ago. I, I mean, I feel like just from a surface level perspective, so much has changed in this space, but can you share 
you know, your perspective on what you think has changed kind of across the board with, with regards to companies focused on women's health and even where Femesis is uh, positioned within that? Actually, um, unfortunately, they don't see a lot of progression in the areas that we're working in. Um, when we look at like the front end of infertility at 9 million women that are infertile, unfortunately, with that number going up, our fertility rates are declining. They're declining in countries like Japan and Germany first, even China with a third child policy. So there are uh, clear indicators of infertility issues in the market and all of our investment dollars have gone to the most expensive end of care. All we hear about when we turn on the TV is IVF, somebody's IVF journey. There's 200,000 IVF cycles done a year. There's 9 million women struggling with infertility. So as much as we say advancements, unfortunately, what I've seen is advancements in the same bucket. You know, uh, we look at heavy bleeding issues. I don't know how many uh, endometrial ablation companies there are, but there continues to be companies that work on those solutions when there are solutions already that have come forward, seven, eight, nine, a dozen. Um, but those are important issues. So I see that work being done in those buckets, those, those, those patient segments. What I don't see is in the areas where there's a dearth it continues to be dry. Um, and so for a company like mine, that presents a, a significant opportunity, but at the end of the day, it's there's no options for women in those key critical areas. Uh, you know, People get comfortable investing in what everyone else is investing in. It's the fifth company pursuing the same thing. It's comfortable or the 12th, it's comfortable. The first company pursuing something in a way that's entirely different is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and so that's kind of where we find ourselves. We purposely put ourselves in that uncomfortable bucket where people have to have the vision, where they have to see what we're doing. And there's not going to be a comparable. There's not going to be 10 other people doing the same thing, though everybody can feel really good about it. You know, when we're the only ones working in these areas, you know, that's a battle in and of itself. Um, huge opportunity, very important for women, but that's what I see 20 years later. It's still the same. So. Why do you think there has been such a focus on the IVF side of things? And maybe we can also root the audience in the contrast of an IVF solution versus something that Femesis uh, might have from a costs perspective, do you care to elaborate on that? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, IVF, which is why so few women get there, is incredibly expensive. It's emotionally burdensome as well. I mean, the conception happens in a Petri dish and then is entered into the uterine cavity. Where we are focused is how do we take the first step and deliver the sperm perhaps in a better way. Uh, if we know conception happens in the tube and we can put things in the tube, let's put the sperm in the tube where the egg happens to be. Um, so ovulate, women ovulate on one side or the other under ultrasound, ultrasound's so great. You can see where the mature follicle is. So it's very easy to detect where the sperm should go. Um, we also know the tube is incredibly small in size, about one to two millimeters in the opening. So you're going from a big cavity to a small little opening. So sperm has to overcome that. And we see male infertility issues on the rise, less motility, less mobility. Uh, so all of those factors come into play. So that's 
You know, we wanted to go to the front end where women could come off the sidelines. We have an issue with fertility. Um, this is well-documented, whether it pans out to projections, time will tell, but it's, it's documented that in a decade or so, we won't have enough 18-year-olds working. You know, we'll have more six-year-olds and eight-year-olds in the country's history for the first time ever. If the projections continue the way they are, there's less babies being born. Um, and so how do we, know, knowing that women aren't going to get to IVF because it's expensive, emotionally burdensome, most won't be able to get there. How do we address the front end with an alternative solution? And that's kind of the tactic that we thought was important to take. Um, I, I think it, it's it's so needed and, and it makes complete sense. And, and it is, I think, almost frustrating how little I feel like this fertility issue uh, is being talked about in, in the decline, you know, in births and in a lot of countries. And, you know, I hope, I hope that we can raise awareness on that. I, kind of in contrast to what I just said, there has been some chatter recently, some, some companies coming about that have been discussing the idea of artificial wombs. And I was wondering if, if you've seen any of, of, of the news or chatter around that, and if you had any perspectives, um, having worked in this space for, for 20 years. I mean, that's a, a very dramatic approach. And I can see that for maybe a very small segment, segment of the population. But if we're talking otherwise healthy folks that get married or, or same-sex couples that want to have a baby, that's a pretty dramatic thing to try to bring into the equation um, when there might be a simpler you know, approach. Um, I always tend to want to lean towards as natural as possible. So when we deliver our sperm, you know, to the tubes, we are helping sperm arrive to the location, but we're not changing the dynamics of that. We're not screening eggs. We're not doing any of those things that are, that's required for an IVF, which is why it's so expensive and why it's so necessary in certain indications. But, uh, you know, the most natural way is to have natural fertilization occur and overcome the obstacles as many as you can to make that happen. So I think this artificial womb and some of these other things I've heard is just a very, it's going to be very expensive. It's a very small, we're going in the other end again. You know, it's even more expensive likely than what IVF brings, which means it's even less people that could benefit from it. Um, I just think people need to, well, we are going to continue to focus on less, less cost, increase the odds. Um, and likewise on our FemBlock product for, for permanent birth control, when we think about the millions, there's 13 million women that are categorized as no longer intending children and their surgery. How do we bring better technology knowing the limitations that exist for the existing technologies that, that are out there right now that no one really wants to talk a lot about because what are the options? So it's the same type of story. You know, let's try to bring something that's less Less is more, um, you know, for elective basic health procedures. Makes makes complete sense. And again, I commend you for focusing your company on this space of 
you know, lower cost uh, delivery mechanisms um, that can have a real impact across the board and not just be for the select few who can afford these dramatic treatment options. So looking ahead for Femesis, what is your hope for your company and, and what's your strategy as a leader over the next five to 10 years? My hope in the not so distant future is to kind of clear the regulatory goalposts with these products. Uh, we've been lifting and doing the development for, for quite some time, particularly for FemBlock. And um, we just, we want to clear and get out there um, and impact women. There, there are a lot of women that have come into trials. There really are heroes to come in and, and contribute to research. Um, but we're, we're working really hard to make this a reality. And so that would be my ultimate goal in the near term. As far as longer term, I think we have an opportunity to really be a, a major player in women's health. How can we house other products that are designed for the OB guy in their office? Can we be that, that, that company that can bring lots of different technologies forward and kind of change that outlook for gynecologists, when we improve things for them, we're improving things for women. Um, and that's just, that's a greater goal. I think um, I think we will have an opportunity to do that. There, For instance, there are really no sales force going and calling on the OB-GYN in the office. I mean, there's prenatal vitamins, there's just nothing. <laughs> there really isn't. So we just, we can change that and then we can bring that focus there. Um, the OB-GYN is such a critically important specialty for women and for the family. We think of 51% of our population being women and women making their healthcare choices for their family. I mean, ha happy mom, healthy woman affects everyone. Uh, so we really, uh, you know, engaging that and being kind of a source for uh, GYNs to, to learn new technologies, to have access to them, to be a funnel, to be able to bring additional products forward beyond what's been internally conceived would be, a gift. Uh, I would love to be able to do that in, inside of the next decade. And I would love to be able to lead that effort and continue this passion and mission and surround myself, myself with even more people that kind of share in the responsibility of doing this right for women and finding good technology that really will otherwise have a very difficult time making it out to the market. You, you have to have a blockbuster to kind of do that with. Um, the small little little products really have to rely on acquisitions to kind of go fold into uh, a greater a greater entity. So my hope is we have that opportunity one day. Makes sense. And and how how does the company communicate to clinicians? I mean, how do you get the word out about these products so that they have access to using them for their patients? So we, um, we attend conferences when they used to be, when, when there used to be conferences, uh, but we've been attending conferences for a long time. We purposely have, uh, you know, look to thought leaders to help us make sure that we're designing and developing properly. So that's been really instrumental in all of the phases. Um, but post that, for instance, with our FemView product, I mean, we are doing outreach even through social media, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, patients are telling their stories on YouTube. And we're now in the next phase going to be looking at um, 
doing physician testimonials and patient testimonials. So people can hear directly from their colleagues, directly from fellow women, you know, what their journeys have looked like and how this product like played a hand in it. So that's our next kind of piece. I took the company public for that reason, actually. There are tailwinds around women's health. Um, we have a story to be told and now we have a way to tell it. I probably never would have met you otherwise as an example. And so this is, and this is giving us the platform to get the word out and maybe amass support to help keep this going and get through these different critical milestones that we have ahead um, and support the company because we need that support in order to make it to the next step. Love it. Can you talk about the process of taking the company public and, and a little, you know, dive in a little bit more to um, that decision and, and how critical it's been to, to the mission? So I had been uh, preparing the company to go public for a couple of years, for a few years. Um, so you can tell the planners coming out again uh, and knowing that if we could time it right or there was an opportunity, I wanted to kind of be at the ready. And fortunately, we did that because an opportunity presented itself. Uh, we were approached to consider this type of public offering or a public offering uh, during that time period. And we were closer to being ready because we had been preparing. Had we not, I think it would have been very difficult uh, being a smaller company, managing multiple products and clinical trials. Um, so that planning is really critical for anyone who's thinking about doing this. I also did it without a full-time CFO, which is unusual, but it is what it is. And again, being properly planning for it and properly prepared is the, is essential. I do have a new CFO. Uh, he started on Monday. So that's a critical uh, new hire for us. And we're thrilled to have him on board. And that's going to really help with all of the things that happen post an IPO. So it's one thing to get it there. And then it's an, the next thing to, you know, maintain and be a healthy uh, public company, which we intend to be uh, every step of the way. So it was a grueling process. I will not tell your viewers uh, otherwise. Um, there have been very few female founders that have done it. So I find myself in a very elite small group and I'm very proud of that, but it's definitely not for the faint of heart. Be prepared. Um, and you know, I'm now looking at you know, the market, the macro issues of the market, and it's, you know, causes a lot of heartburn and a lot of, uh, you know, it's just really hard to look at, you know, to look at the market. But I also look at it as an opportunity that we are still the same company with the same mission, with the same milestones ahead of us um, when we went public and today. So we just, um, we put our heads down and get the job done. Certainly. Yeah, it's been a kind of a trying time, I think, as far as the market in general and, and also biotech and, and pharma in particular recently. And I think there've been, there's been a push for companies to go public that might not have been ready and also, you know, just kind of suffering across the board in, in some cases you know, I, I commend you for, for taking the time and you've really built something that already had incredible value, uh, as far as products and, and, and where you guys are positioned within this med tech space. So it, it hopefully you're somewhat immune, immune to some of, some of the heartache there. I don't know if that's a, 
a, a true perspective or not. Well, at least I've heeded a lot of advice from public CEOs to, you know, not look at the ticker symbol every minute of the day and, you know, stay focused on the business. And that does take a little bit to get used to doing. Um, and your stockholders, they back you, they come in and they have, you know, every, you're responsible for, for all of it. And it, 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 it does get uh, quite difficult, but at the end of the day, we have a job to get done and that's what we intend to do. Absolutely. I want to get back to you as a leader and all of your learnings over the years. Can you share advice for other women founders out there um, and any kind of key takeaways that, that you've had over the last 20 years of, of building this company? I think it boils down to perseverance. I mean, just keep going um, and, you know, be fluid because sometimes things happen that are completely out of your control, like a pandemic, uh, which happened a week after we started our trial. You know, those are things you cannot control um, and, you know, manage, manage your dollars because at the end of the day, those, that's who survives is the company that can pivot and manage manage your budget properly and extend your runway when you need to. Um, it's, it's hard in women's health because there hasn't really been glowing comparables that you know investors are gonna look towards. We need to have some wins. So women founders that are they're, you know, running women's companies, like we really we need to keep pushing. And when somebody wins, the whole sector wins. Um, and then more people will, will come. They, I think every investor I've ever talked to, which have been majority men, have said, well, obviously women have these needs and obviously women's health is important. It's, and, but then that it, you have to bridge that from it's obvious to I'm going to step up and I'm going to back this and I'm going to put my, my money forward. And those are, that's the gap that we have to you know, address. But I think that's a great point you know, a more eloquent way of saying talk is cheap. You know, let's, let's execute on these needs together. And I'm very, I'm very hopeful for the space. I think, you know, while I agree with your point that, that a lot of companies follow each other as far as what they're working on and uh, what their focus might be, it is a uh, I think a positive signal that we've seen uh, so many new founder-led companies and so many new women's health companies and, you know, maybe where uh, government research and, and, and funding has, has been lacking, we can make improvements on the private uh, sector side. So I'm eager to see how, how things evolve. To that end, are there any other, you know, projects, teams, or folks in this space that that uh, you you admire or you think are are doing uh, doing right by the women's health space? I mean, I so admire any woman that's in my seat as well. No matter what product they're working on, particularly if they're working in women's health, and there's just a small number of us, we all know who who each other is. Uh, I've sat on panels with many of these women. They're they're all making a difference. You know, we need to move the needle. There's more of a presence of women on boards now too, which is going to add an element of uh, that perspective that we're hoping to garner uh, as we look to these issues. So, I mean, those are 
they're walking the walk. Just we have similar issues, we have similar struggles, uh, we have similar opportunities. So I would say I, I admire every single one of them, and I'm grateful to be in that elite group of women. That there's so few of us that are doing it. That um, you know, it's it, it's it takes such effort and vision and stay the course because we could definitely jump and do other things that might not have these added pieces, but, uh, you know, women led companies, that's, it's important when you're looking at women's health issues. Mm -hmm. How do you think we, we, we best onboard more, more women founders? Are there particular resources that, that you think, um, can help, help with that? I mean, uh, every female CEO that I've talked to has talked about the importance of mentorship. Um, we see very talented women. I see it in my own organization that have that possibility. Uh, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of sacrifice uh, to do what we do, but uh, cultivating that, you know, mentoring, taking time to do so. We're all so busy juggling so many things as any CEO, male or woman is doing, uh, particularly if they're running a public company. So it's just, you know, finding that to be a priority Mm-hmm. Um, and so every single one of us, it's the common theme is to talk about mentoring and being, you know, involved and being able to connect and being available. You know, people need to, you know, want to reach out We're uh, I've yet to hear a female CEO, uh, think that they, they wouldn't carve out some time to help someone who's, uh, trying to pursue this similar journey. So likewise, myself, I, I would be happy to help someone. Amazing. And, and for those who are listening, who might want to, to chat with you, as far as your experience in mentorship, where is the best place for, for them to find you? I mean, they can find me on LinkedIn. That seems to be the best place. Um, and certainly through our website, there's various different contacts. Um, we're pretty easy to reach in this, especially being public. So it's all out there. If, they really want to reach me. There's no problem in, in, in doing so. And, you know, it's important for us to support other women, especially women that are evolving in their careers. They're awesome. the future. Yep. Awesome. Well, Kathy, I just want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing your insights and, and teaching us about Femesis's mission and all of your achievements in this space as an inventor and as a leader I, I think it's incredible the headway you're making as far as offering solutions to women that are not at that uh, dramatic end of the spectrum, the, the expensive, uh, emotionally burdened end of the, the health spectrum, and really solving uh, problems with solutions that can be more accessible. Um, to women. So thank you so much for your work and and for taking the time today. Thank you for the kind words, Jocelyn. And it was a pleasure meeting you. Um, Thank you to all your listeners. We'll make sure to to drop Kathy's LinkedIn and and the link to to Femesis as well. If any folks are interested in learning more about this awesome company. So yes, once again, Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. That wraps up my interview with Kathy Lee Sepsik. Kathy, thanks so much for taking the time today. And to our listeners, thank you so much for supporting and listening to Lady Scientist Podcast. If you enjoyed the topic of women's health, 
I recommend you check out the interview I did with Allison Paquette. She's a researcher from the University of Washington, and we chat all about this topic as well. Thank you again for listening and supporting our show.